The poetry lifts the spirit. The poetry combines the music, the imagery, those things which stimulate the senses. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Hi, Andrew. What are you reading? Well, Julie, I'm reading one of the oldest poems in existence. Okay. Would you like to hear the first I would love lines? to, yes. Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son Achilles, and its devastation, which put pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans, hurled in their multitudes to the house of Hades, strong souls of heroes, but gave their bodies to be the delicate feasting of dogs, of all birds, and the will of Zeus was accomplished since that time when first there stood, in division of conflict, Atreus' son, the lord of men, and brilliant Achilles. Ah, and that is from? Of course, the Iliad. Yes. This is the Richard Lattimore translation, which many consider to be one of the most artistic. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you know, I've been reading uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey with the kids around here mm -hmm. this year. So Just light reading. <laughs> it's been delightful. It's been marvelous to reread again and again. Anything worth reading is worth reading again yes. and again. Yes, we've talked about the definition of a classic. Yes, you know, and get more out of each time. But I'm so glad that you suggested poetry, that we talk a little bit more about it, because, of course... It's one of those things that can kind of get sidelined. Yes, schools, you know, when they're doing budget cuts, they look at the things that are ancillary, music, dance, PE, even poetry. Well, perhaps, especially in the high stakes testing environment where you only have a limited amount of time in the day and you have to get these kids ready for those standardized tests. And so I think less and less, sadly, Poetry is being appreciated, promulgated, experienced, written by children in our country. Mm -hmm. And of course, Mrs. Ingham, her favorite little sign she would carry around in bright lights above her head was poetry, the great integrator. Exactly. And of course, our PAL products for our homeschooling families and our school division materials all very carefully integrate poetry in the learning of writing and teaching writing. Yes, and you know, I don't think she was necessarily consciously aware of this, no. but if you look at the seven liberal arts, hmm. there is this goal of these seven liberal arts, and part of that goal is poetry. And uh, let me explain. Can I explain? Sure, please. So we look at the trivium. We have grammar, logic, and rhetoric. We have grammar so that we can communicate, logic so that we can communicate reasonably well with purpose, and rhetoric so that we can communicate artistically and persuade. Then, of course, the quadrivium, we have the sometimes called the mathematical side. Mm. You know, We have mathematics, geometry, astronomy, and music. Mm. One of those interesting relationships is that mathematics is quantity, 
and geometry is shape. Okay. Astronomy is shape in motion, and music is quantity in motion. I love that. But what a lot of people might not realize is that the ancient Greeks who kind of established this whole concept of these arts of learning considered poetry to be a form of music. Hmm. Sure, that, that makes sense. Poets and musicians essentially were the same, mm -hmm. and that Homer, who is the mysterious name behind whoever wrote Homer, <laughs> uh, what was the joke? Homer was not written by Homer, but by some other man of that same name. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> we don't necessarily know, but he's always depicted with a harp. Mm -hmm. So that the story, the song, the mm -hmm. poem are all integrated into one. We don't know what it would sound like, but he's basically saying, Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus, son Achilles. Exactly. The Odyssey starts out in a similar fashion. Tell me, muse, of the man of many ways, who has driven far journeys after he had sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Mm -hmm. So sing, O goddess, tell me, muse. So the poets would invoke the goddess, the muse. And that word muse, of course, uh, is where we get our word music. Mm. Right? Mm. A little ironic side point, word study. I've probably said this before, but I always find it fascinating that the Greeks considered music serious business. Like when you were composing, when you were writing poetry, when you were working on music, this was total concentration, nose to the grindstone, seriousness. Mm -hmm. Then you'd get tired from all that, and you would relax, and then you would amuse mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. You would amuse. You would have no muse. You would be off on your own relaxing. And so the irony, of course, is that now today we use music to amuse ourselves. <laughs> But we're listening and enjoying. We're not actually producing and creating. True, true. That is true. So we have kind of poetry as the integrator mm. of the trivium and the quadrivium. Mm -hmm. We have the rhetoric, which of course is the artful use of words and language, and then we have the meter, the rhyme, the scheme, the music of the language. Mm -hmm. And so the poetry kind of bonds those two together. So it is the great integrator. And of course, in the medieval view, uh, the trivium and the quadrivium were, were those things you would study so that you would be qualified, finally, to study the queen of all liberal arts, theology. Mm, mm -hmm. So we see poetry right there, like the corpus callosum of the midbrain, connecting the two hemispheres of the cortex. Wow. Poetry. So that actually brings up a question, and I, I have a few questions, so I'll start with this one, and maybe we'll end with this one. How does that sound? The question of the definition of poetry, and how do you know that you're quote, doing poetry, or if you're just doing prose? Ooh. As, as uh, who was a, a politician I listened to once, and someone said, so what's your opinion on the age of the earth? Oh, right, yes. And he said, that question is above my pay grade. Nice, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think certainly there's a line between poetry and prose, but not necessarily a black and white hard one. Right if we look at different translations of, say, the Iliad, mm -hmm. or poems written in other languages, or the Psalms, mm -hmm. obviously written in Hebrew mm -hmm. and translated into English many, many different ways, mm -hmm. translators have the option to kind of be more poetic. In other words, let's 
try to force this to rhyme. <laughs> right. <laughs> or let us be literal. Mm -hmm. Let us tell exactly what these words mean. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of see translation would be that point where one person may say, oh, that sounds like poetry. Mm -hmm. Another person may see, well, that sounds like prose. And maybe it's a matter of the poetry being a part of that linguistic marble that you're working into a child, into yourself, so that you can write better prose. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How would that work? Well, first of all, vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Poets are forced by the rhyme schemes, the meter they choose, the things that they want to address, they're forced generally to use a wider range of vocabulary than, say, a novelist, or certainly that a child would encounter in daily life. Mm -hmm. So if you were to pick up an anthology of great poetry, say 300 pages, or a modern novel, Harry Potter or whatever, mm -hmm. of the same length, I think you'd find there's way more words in the poetry mm. simply because the variety of ways that poets want to say things demand that. So it's one of the best ways to expand vocabulary. In fact, I learned this one when I was very young. You may recognize it. Some people might not. <laughs> uh, but I learned it, I don't know, probably 10 years old. It goes like this. Scintillate, scintillate, globule vivific. Fain would I ponder thy nature specific. Loftily poised in ether capacious, strongly resembling a gem carbonaceous. <laughs> Usually, if people don't get it, then you sing it for them, and then they make the connection. Scintillate, scintillate, globule vivific, fain would I ponder thy nature specific. Loftily poised in ether capacious, strongly resembling a gem, carbonaceous. <laughs> scintillate, scintillate. And so then they go, oh, yeah. I think that one is in our poetry program. But whoever wrote it was certainly exercising some vocabulary muscle Absolutely. in a humorous way, but in a pattern that made it easy for me as a 10-year-old to memorize. And then what? I got words like capacious <laughs> right? and carbonaceous right. well, that's easy. and fain and <laughs> ponder mm -hmm. and scintillate mm -hmm. and globule. <laughs> All these words, you just don't encounter these mm -hmm. around the dinner table usually. You know? <laughs> so vocabulary building is certainly one of the big pluses of reading, memorizing, and enjoying poetry at a young age. Right. So let's take those three elements that you mentioned and add a fourth to it, and that's writing. So the first thing is enjoying poetry. Which poems should I read to myself, to my children? Just how do I enjoy poetry? How do I choose? Mm -hmm. Secondly, why do you believe, and as, as a result, me, why do I believe that memorizing poetry is good for children, mm -hmm. more than just reading? Thirdly, can I understand the structure of poetry well enough to be able to teach them how to write their own poetry to be producers rather than just consumers? And then finally, acting out poetry. I think it's one of the lovely things about our poetry memorization courses. You know how to act out poetry, and the kids enjoy listening to you read how to do that. So those four ways of experiencing poetry. Well, listening and reading and just having it in your environment, that's pretty easy to do. Just get a book of poems and start reading them. I've told our listeners on other occasions about my childhood growing up on a boat 
and having nothing to do in the evenings on a boat because there was no TV, no internet, no radio, no nothing, just mom, dad, sister, and books. Mm -hmm. So to that way, it recreated a 150 years ago type of literary environment. Yeah, I was going to ask, how old are you? (laughs) Yes, well, uh, not that old. No, not that old. (laughs) It recreated that world without technology, Mm -hmm. in a way. And so my father would read the poems pretty much the same poems, more or less, week after week, month after month, year after year. And so I couldn't not memorize them. Right. You know, Some of them I would just memorize simply by hearing them. And then some of them that were, say, longer, and I thought, oh, I want to memorize that. So just reading poems, the same ones again and again to children, will cause them to delight mm-hmm. in the poem mm-hmm. that they here again and again, and then they will have a natural desire to memorize them, which of course we've gone into great detail before on why that is good for the brain, good for the vocabulary, good for the syntax, good preparation for all sorts of, well, everything we do, listen, speak, read, write, think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think in most cases, the environment is a poetical environment. Right. And... Of course, if you have boys, you want to start with the poems that are humorous, that grab their attention, that stimulate their imagination. Mm -hmm. And then as they hear more poems that are kind of maybe funny or silly or tell a story, Casey at the Bat, Jabberwocky, Ella Telephony, they then fall in love with Mm -hmm. the sound, the music of the language. I would just say, if you don't give children beautiful things, good things to memorize, Mm -hmm. they'll memorize bad stuff. They'll memorize whatever's in their environment. Mm -hmm. They'll memorize TV commercials. Mm -hmm. I can still give you the Big Mac recipe. 12 beef, pie, sauce, cheese, pickles, onions, sesame seed, bun. And I can do it backwards. Bun, seed, sesame, on onions, pickles, cheese, lettuce, sauce, special, patty, seafood, all too. Oh, you overachiever, you. Well, you know, (laughs) which means we're exactly the same age. (laughs) Right, exactly. Memorization is a natural faculty. We did a whole podcast Mm -hmm. on memory two or three I think sure Mm -hmm. but the poetry lifts the spirit the poetry combines the music the imagery the schemes are those things which stimulate the senses so when we hear an alliteration when we hear a rhyme scheme when we hear a rhythmic pattern and we have a limerick scheme and it appeals to the senses then of course we have the tropes tropes are those things that appeal to the imagination so metaphor the mother of all tropes and its little sister simile are widely used in all of the great poetry because it stimulates the imagination. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And immediately you're seeing the army as well as this image of a wolf coming down into a little herd of sheep. And mm-hmm. I guess you call it a fold of sheep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the cohorts gleaming in purple and gold. And so the use of the metaphor builds the imagination, which of course is also an essential quality for good writing. And in our decorations, what are our decorations? Alliteration, simile, metaphor, three short staccato sentences, triples. We can expand that to parallel constructions, personification. 
dramatic opening paragraphs. So that storytelling, effective rhetoric, incorporates many of the poetic elements mm-hmm. that you learn really by osmosis, in mm-hmm. a way, through living in a poetical environment. So we're surrounding our environment with poetry, reading it, we're listening to it, we're memorizing it. And now I want to write poetry. How do I go about that? Well, there's the new school and there's the old school. Okay. The new school is express yourself, mm-hmm. whatever you feel. Just, you know, reach into the depths of your soul and mm-hmm. your angst and your love and your joy mm-hmm. and just put words on paper and you'll have poetry. So that's one opinion. Mm -hmm. And certainly, we would not deny that a few people from time to time are successful with this approach. Mm -hmm. Although it's very likely the people who appear to be successful with this approach actually mastered the traditional approach and are breaking free. Kind of like Picasso. Mm -hmm. Did you know that Picasso could draw so perfectly that his drawings looked like photographs? I actually learned this quite recently. I thought, what a strange man. Yes. And then to find out, he was actually classically trained. So the only way Picasso could could deconstruct mm-hmm. art and painting was to have mastered it at first. Mm-hmm. That's why not just anybody can try to be Picasso and succeed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same thing, I think, with poetry. But the, the modern school, is it's all about self-expression, emotion, and art is catharsis and all that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the classical approach would be to learn certain elements that make poetry poetry, mm-hmm. practice those elements, and imitate great poems, great poets, and build your repertoire of skill so that when you go to write a poem, it's more like a poem and less random. Right, exactly. So we sell, of course, this Grammar of Poetry course by mm-hmm. Matt Whitling. And it's a delightful little course because you get to learn things that you might not otherwise ever learn. A lot of people probably heard at some point in their life the term iambic pentameter. Yep. And the reason is because a lot of Shakespeare sonnets are written in iambic pentameter. Okay. But what does that mean? Penta, that's five. Five, you're on the right track. So in the Grammar of Poetry course, you learn about these different ways to create rhythm and rhyme scheme. And so meter comes from the Greek word metron, which means to measure. Okay. And it's the measured rhythm of a line of poetry. Okay. And so if you say hickory dickory dock, Mm -hmm. the mouse ran up the clock. The clock struck one, the mouse ran down, hickory dickory dock you have then the accent falling in a metric way. Mm, mm -hmm. And so then what you learn is that iamb, I-A-M-B, is a da-di-da-di-da pattern. Mm. So it's a two-beat accent on the first syllable, right? So that's iam, so da-di-da-di-da-di-da would be iambic. Okay. Then a pentameter would be five feet per line. So <laughs> okay. you would have five rhythmic beats, right? So one and two and three and four and five. And you may drop the last half of the, the foot there, and then you get this rhythmic pattern. And so you can have iambic 
trimeter would be three feet. Right. Iambic hexameter would be six feet. Uh, and it just happens that pentameter is common in Shakespeare's. Oh, I see. Okay. So iamb, mm-hmm. I-A-M-B, which is where we get iambic, okay. is a particular rhythmic pattern, which is di-da, 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 where you have the accent, you have a weak and then a strong. Mm-hmm. So afraid, oppose, mm-hmm. delight. Okay. Do you hear it? Yes, I do. So our accent falls on the second beat. So when you have an iambic pattern, then the raging rocks and shivering shock shall break the locks of prison gates. Hmm. Do you hear it? Yes, I do. Now, the number of feet or accented syllables per line mm-hmm. is called the meter. Okay. And so you have trimeter would be three, mm-hmm. diameter would two. be two, pentameter would five. be five, right. and hexameter would be six. And so when you have iambic pentameter, it would be di-da, 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 di-da. And you'd have a, a rhythmic pattern. Mm-hmm. Now, you said to me once, well, sonnets don't rhyme. Well, you Shakespeare, know, Shakespeare doesn't, rhyme. doesn't rhyme. And so we don't always have to have a rhyme scheme. Hmm. It helps. It makes the poetry fun, more easy to memorize, mm-hmm. more beautiful, easier to relate to in a way. Mm-hmm. But you can have the rhythmic nature of the poetry, say, in the Shakespearean sonnet. Mm. So if you study this book and this course, then you you not only learn what is iambic pentameter, so that when <laughs> someone says it, you know what it is. Great Jeopardy question. Um, huh? <laughs> you also can practice writing that iambic dimeter, iambic trimeter, iambic tetrameter, mm-hmm. and like such. Now then, trochet is a reversal. Trochet would be the opposite of iam. So with iambic, you'd have di-da, di-da, and trochet would be da, di-da, di-da. So it'd be like gather, heartless, going, laughter. Mm-hmm. And so your trochet poem might sound something like this. Round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw. Toad that under cold stone, days and nights has thirty-one, sweltering venom sleeping got. Boil thou first in the charmed pot. That's, of course, from Macbeth. Right. So sometimes Shakespeare does rhyme, at least a little bit. Yes. Of course, that's a, you know, that's a a spell. It has to have super magical powers. (laughs) So that would be your trochaic tetrameter which would be four feet per line, with a few little exceptions or extra syllables here or there, Mm -hmm. which is the freedom of poets, especially if you happen to be Shakespeare. (laughs) Right. So I really enjoyed teaching through this course, The Grammar of Poetry. Mm -hmm. It's important not to do it too soon or too young Mm -hmm. and not to do it in isolation. It best is done after a child has memorized a few dozen poems, has fallen in love with the sound of it, right. is excited by the idea of poetry in general, mm-hmm. and then you can start to learn about it. But mm-hmm. anything to hyperanalyze too soon is to, well, as Kern would say, kill the puppy. Right. You don't learn about a puppy by dissecting it. You learn about it by playing with it. And then I guess when it dies, you can dissect it (laughs) or not. (laughs) Or not. So the benefit of this program is it's based on imitation. 
you learn the fundamentals. There's a whole lot more than what I just mentioned, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. And then you practice writing in these different patterns. Mm-hmm. So it fits so well with our philosophy, yes. which is you learn by models, imitation, you build up a repertoire of abilities and techniques. Mm-hmm. And then then go do what you want. Right, exactly. And and when I think about what you just said and goes back to my question that I had earlier, what's the difference between prose and poetry? Oftentimes we see poetry in prose. For example, I just recently listened to a book, read a book by Mary Stewart, The Hollow Hills. It's part of the Arthurian trilogy okay. that she did. And this is this is a line from the book. In the morning, it was fine with one of those glittering sharp days that December sometimes throws down like bright gold among the lead of winter's coinage. Isn't that lovely? It I is. just love that metaphor. And I had to listen to that again. I said, oh, rewind that. I want to hear that again. And, and I think Mary Stewart must know poetry to be able to write like that. Now, I've never seen any published work of hers as far as poetry, but she's an exceptional writer because she has the vocabulary and some of the schemes and tropes that you were talking about earlier. It would be fascinating to find out a little more about her, mm-hmm. you know, biographically. What was her education like? Right. And certainly she probably read most all of the great classics. And it kind of reminded me, too, of something I read in uh, John Senior's book about literature. He said, we must read the children the nursery rhymes so they can love Shakespeare Hmm. because that's where their ear starts to be tuned to the beauty of language. And we must read the thousand good books so that we can read the hundred great books. Hmm. And I certainly do find in, in teaching some of these classic and epic poems, the more familiarity that students have with lots of different poetry, the more likely they are to be happy to read this one. My little ship of ingenuity now hoists her sails to speed through better waters, leaving behind so pitiless a sea. And I will sing about that second realm, given the human soul to purge its sin and grow worthy to climb to paradise. Here rise to life again, dead poetry. Let it, O holy muses, for I am yours. And here, Calliope, strike a higher key, accompanying my song with that sweet air which made the wretched magpies feel a blow that turned all hope of pardon to despair. And this is, of course, the first few lines of the first canto of Dante's Purgatorio. Hmm. So how can you appreciate that? You need to have the background, you need mm-hmm. to have the vocabulary, you need to have the, the love of the sound of the words. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like food, mm-hmm. in a way. If you just have a diet of junk food, it's hard to really appreciate some of the finer foods that you might have a chance to eat later on. Mm-hmm. And so McDonald's is okay, and sometimes you listen to silly, dumb poems. But the goal should be to gradually introduce the more refined, the more beautiful, the more uplifting, Mm -hmm. just like we would want to increase the Mm -hmm. nutritional value of the food we give children. And I do believe our listeners love these ideas of poetry, and I do believe that they will continue this journey of surrounding their students with great literature, including poetry. We can talk all day about this. We should do it again sometime. We should. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. Thank you.